Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you on this second day of Christmas. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. We celebrated yesterday the birth of Jesus, the coming into the world of the Son of God. And, and we think about that a lot to one extent. We think about how joyful that is and how much God loves us, but what we're thinking about now as we go through the 12 days of Christmas, and we'll be doing that the next two editions of Steadfast and also through the 12 days of Christmas devotional booklet I hope you've downloaded or will download, is thinking about the overall picture of what Jesus accomplishes. What does that birth do? What is that in the overall scheme of history? How does it work? And, and I think that's important because we think about it, we celebrate it, and then we move on. Now, on Christmas Eve, we talked about the overall cosmic battle that, that Satan has been fighting God, thinking he can somehow win. <clears throat> and yet, we see in that picture of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus coming into the world, that even in that most vulnerable of moments, that, that Satan doesn't have power. Nonetheless, do we really understand what is going on? Are we spending time thinking about that? So that as we celebrate the birth of the newborn king, we're understanding the fullness of what God has done for us. That's what we want to think about tonight. And as we do that, let's go ahead and come before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of the gift of your son, for sending him into the world to save us, to restore this creation that you have made. Lord, would you help us to understand more fully the depth of your love, the determination that you have, the victory that you claim, that we might rejoice more fully and more lastingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a lot of uncertainty. We've been thinking about that over the course of this series that we've been in, that, that God comes into an uncertain world. And we're reminded of that oftentimes when we think that we know how everything is going with the weather. Now, this past week, if you're here in St. Louis, you've seen, generally speaking, the meteorologists have been pretty good at tracking it. They, they said we were going to have snow on Thursday. What did we find? We had some snow on Thursday. Not a ton, but we had enough where we could actually say yesterday we had a white Christmas. But with that came all kinds of additional uncertainty. There was a level of understanding of what was going to happen in the weather, but then a great deal of uncertainty. What did that mean for travel? And so for those of you that were traveling to some place, whether it was driving to a, a nearby city or flying across the country or whatever it might have been, suddenly Christmas and everything surrounding it felt much more uncertain. What was going to happen? We didn't really know. I mentioned last week that I had received warnings from Spectrum about the outages. We didn't know if our power would go out, if our communications would go out. We didn't know those sorts of things. And in life, we feel like, well, we can kind of get a forecast of where things are going, but we don't really know where things are going either. We feel like in Scripture, we get a forecast. There's a lot of sin coming. There's a lot of evil coming. And it seems like that's very unpredictable. But what is going to happen in our lives. How's that going to play out for us? Sort of like a cat. You, my cat, I don't know how to predict him. He'll sometimes do exactly what I think he's going to do. Other times, not so much. But what we find in, in God's forecast is it's not only predicting certain things are going to happen, but it's completely true and predictable how everything is going to happen. 
And what we see as we think about these passages we've been looking at and gathering together to hear the different voices speaking into the message of Christmas is a very predictable story, one that can give us great confidence in what God's doing. Like I said, we looked at Revelation 12 on Christmas Eve and thought about God's victory there. Today in our devotional booklet, we're looking at Genesis 3, where it seems like Satan has the victory. But let's go ahead now. We're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 27, where we read this starting in verse 1. It says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This picture is thought to be the one that, that John is grasping on to describe what he's seeing in Revelation, the passage we were talking about on Christmas Eve, and this is providing a background for it. There's this, this beast, this Leviathan, that's the picture of evil opposing God. Now, there were lots of myths about Leviathans in the, the realm around Israel. The, this is a, a figure that appears over and over again in mythology. And it seems as though Isaiah picks it up because people understood from hearing these stories this, this idea of some kind of beast of chaos that would come and destroy, that you couldn't really predict what it was going to do. What Isaiah wants to say is in the uncertainty that the people of Israel were experiencing, they could know that, that God was over everything, even over that which represents chaos itself. And, and there's this connection that Isaiah wants to make. He doesn't just use the term Leviathan and leave it there. He uses the term serpent as well. And there it's believed that he's linking back to Genesis 3, where Satan takes on the form of a serpent. And then when John invokes that in Revelation 12, he's pulling all this together to say, yes, this, this picture of this beast of chaos that, that tries to defeat God's plan. Guess what? God has victory over it. And I think this is important for us to hear when things aren't necessarily going how we expect. So in Isaiah's time, what he's telling the people here, he's already given a forecast of judgment. The people have turned towards sin, turned towards chaos. They've turned away from God, as we do as human beings. We, we find ourselves chasing after things that are displeasing to God. And, and as we do that, then sometimes it's the natural consequences of sin. Sometimes it's direct judgment from God, but, but things start to break down. And we start to wonder, well, is this judgment from God? Is this the natural consequences of sin? Or is this authentication that God isn't really in control? And for the people of Israel, that was the risk, that they would see these conquering nations that would come that would take them out into exile, and they'd look at that and think, well, maybe God isn't really all that powerful. And Isaiah wants them to know here. God wants to, them to know as he's speaking through Isaiah. You need to understand that I really am in control. And while judgment's going to come, something is coming after that. And the first thing about that is that I can vanquish evil at will. I have the power to do that. That's what God wants them to know about him. And so it is that this picture of Leviathan comes up over and over again in Scripture, repeatedly in the sense to say, God's in charge. For example, in Job, when, when God is confronting Job and, and saying, Job, you don't understand what's going on, and you can't because you haven't done all these different wonderful and magnificent and awe-inspiring things. One of them is, God says in, in Job 41, verse 1, Job, have you ever been able to haul Leviathan out with a fishhook? 
Job can't go fishing for Leviathan. The, the beast that represents all the chaos in the world, he can't do that. But God says he can. Psalm 40, excuse me, Psalm 74, verse 13, we're told that the Leviathan is crushed. It can't uphold itself against God. It goes even further in Psalm 104, verse 26, where we're told that, that the Leviathan, it's said to be a sea creature, that the Lord made the sea that it gets to play in. And so, yes, the sea is scary to the Israelites. They were never a successful seafaring people. If you're not good at seafaring, I'm not good at seafaring, it, it can seem quite intimidating going out to sea. What, what will happen out there? But, but for the, even the Leviathan, even the most uncontrollable parts of the sea or life, they're simply swimming, dwelling in that which God made for them. They're playing on God's terms. God's the one in control. And, and so what this tells us here is even when things seem to be going in unpredictable ways, even when things aren't going well, even, for example, as Mary and Joseph would have to flee to Egypt to avoid Herod's wrath, it seems like things are out of control, that Satan is in power. What do we find? Satan's never really in power. Evil is never really in power. It might seem like it. You might think maybe we just should join with the powers of the world, because at least they seem to be in power. But they're not really. They're swimming in the, 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 the pool or the aquarium for a period of time while God allows it. But they're not in power. And it's so important for us to understand. When the psalmist in Psalm 74 men, mentions that Leviathan is going to be crushed, he mentions it in the context of mourning the exile, mourning the destruction of the temple from the Babylonians. And it seems like evil is in power. Chaos is in power. What does he do? He turns and says, but Lord, you're the Lord who can crush the Leviathan. You're the one who can part the seas. You're the one who can do all these things that we've seen and will see. That's where he finds his hope. And that's where we find our hope. We might not know how God's going to crush the chaos in our own lives, the uncertainties in our lives. Whatever you might be thinking about today, maybe as you sit a little bit more quietly after Christmas and, and you find your mind wandering to, to things. How are those things going to work out? We may not know, but God knows. And what we know is that evil will not prosper. God's in control. It's interesting if you think about going into to stores over the years. At some point, they started adding those little tags to stop shoplifters and well, they weren't really little at all. Oftentimes there were these big hunks of plastic attached to clothing or, or whatnot so that the person could think they were going to shoplift, but they get to the, the door and the alarm goes off. And over time, those shoplifting controls have gotten smaller and smaller to the point now where they're often hidden in the packaging. And so the person really does. It looks like they're they're going to prosper. They take this little box and they start carrying it to the to the door. They slip it in their pocket, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like they're going to be able to to prosper. But then they hit that that gate where the alarm goes off and it becomes clear they weren't in control at all. They were swimming in the aquarium, as it were. They were under the control of the shopkeeper who had a system to keep it all on, under control, all surveilled properly. That's how it is with God. We might not understand at the moment. It looks like people are shoplifting from God's store and they're carrying stuff. Their, their coats are bulging with all the things they pulled off the shelves. God is in control. He will be in control. And that's what we're told here. 
even when victory appears to be going the way of evil, even when Satan seems to be getting everything he wants, even when he's chasing the very Son of God out of the land to Egypt for safety, or, or tempting the Son of God out in the wilderness, he's not in control. He never has been, and he never will be. What we see as we go on in Isaiah 27 is that victory is assured, that victory will come. That's what we see in these next verses. Let's take a look. It says in verse 2, In that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Now, we're just jumping into the middle of Isaiah here. We've been dwelling in Isaiah over the past month, but we're just sort of in the middle of it. And there's a, a story that Isaiah is telling over the course of it. And if we were to turn back to Isaiah 5, or if you think back to having read it perhaps sometime in the past, there's another picture of a vineyard just like this, only in that vineyard, God's bringing destruction. Judgment is coming. God's going to let the evil things that, that disrupt a, a healthy garden come, the briars and the thorns, the walls are going to be knocked over. The destruction is coming because the people have chosen to align with the evil of the world, or the powers of the world, to worship false gods, to do all these displeasing things. And God's going to allow things to come apart. But here, even before the judgment has been realized, God wants the people to hear that he's going to sing of the day that the vineyard is restored and nothing will separate that vineyard from his love. That there's hope. And there's hope even for those who are the worst agents of, of evil in this world. Those of us, maybe maybe you look at yourself and think, God would never want to forgive me because there's so much that I've done that's evil. There's so many times I turn against what's pleasing to him, I, I shouldn't even bother to seek forgiveness. But, but notice what it says once again in verse 4. He, God says, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together, or, this is key in verse 5, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. So the, the thorns and the briars, the, the evil that is in the world, sure, God can throw it into the fire, and, and at the end of time, he will throw those thorns and briars that choose not to make peace with him into the fire. They will be separated from him eternally. So we're called not to stay in that place. But the key thing is that we don't have to stay in that place. If you're not yet in relationship with Jesus, if you're wondering if he'd want anything to do with you, the very thorns and briars in the garden, the most undesirable things that would sprout up in a garden, God says they can make peace with him. Whatever you might say about yourself, God takes something that seems to have absolutely no value and says, I want peace with it. I know that's what he's saying to you and to me, that I want peace with you. And so it is that, yes, he could burn it up, but he says, or let them lay hold of my protection. There's a point where we can repent. There's a chance to repent. And so as the destruction is going to come to Israel, there's going to be judgment. Even then they can repent and turn and make peace with the Lord. And what we see is that as we do that, then the promise at the end of this, this passage 
comes forth. Verse 6 once again, In days to come Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. What does that mean there? Well, it means that there's a story that, that's growing, a story that involves us, and it's a story of God's fruitfulness and blessing for the world. It, it evokes the image that Jesus will later refer to in John chapter 15, where he talks about being the vine and us being the branches, that, that God's going to take this garden, this garden that seemed to be destined for pure destruction, even the thorns and briars, and make them fruitful, that, that God's people, Jacob and Israel, will blossom forth and bless the world. And we see that fulfilled as Jesus comes into the world, that, that the purpose of Israel, of God's people representing God to the world, comes to fruition as the one perfect Israelite is born. <coughs> and that one perfect Israelite offers all of us to get to follow him and experience being part of God's fruitful people. The whole world will be blessed. And so it is when Jesus uses that image later on, and he talks about being the vine and us being the branches. He's offering not only to, to redeem us and allow us to experience peace with him, but to experience being a part of what he's doing, to, to actually have purpose with him. Because I think most of us, sure, it's nice to not have someone angry at us, and certainly it's wonderful not to have God angry at us. But how much better when God says, and I'm going to use you. You're going to be a part of my plan for this world. I'm not going to just say, okay, I'm not going to destroy you anymore. I'm going to leave you over in the corner useless. No, God's going to use us. And that's the picture, if you think about it, of the Christian life. What we're being invited into or being reminded that we're a part of already is that it's meant to be a life that's productive, a life that's a blessing to others. That's our call to follow Jesus and just as he blesses us to, to be a blessing to those around us. And I think it shows how, taken in the right context, God can take things that seem even destructive, like ourselves and our lives and our, our faults and foibles, and he, he turns them around and uses them. It's like that snow I was talking about earlier that, that disrupted the travel plans for, for many people at Christmas. Maybe you. You think about it. When, when we have some place to go and, and the weather gets rough, we, we don't find ourselves looking forward to that weather. But what happens when the context changes? When, for example, we're where we want to be at Christmas time. We're already there safely. And then it starts to snow. Well, then we think about how we've been singing for years in St. Louis. It's been quite a few years since we had a white Christmas. And we sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. There's all kinds of Christmas songs that nowadays refer to the ideal of, of a snowy Christmas. And, and at least for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, that's sort of what we look forward to. We, we want a white Christmas. It's, it's lovely and it's beautiful. It's all about context. That snow that on the one hand can be a, an agent of destruction and chaos and seem like it's just messing everything up, on the other hand, becomes a beautiful treetopper. It becomes the thing that makes the, the decorations glow all the more. And if you're sitting in the warmth of a nice house with loved ones at Christmas time, it seems perfect. God does that with us. He takes us from being those who are being tossed around to and fro in the chaos of the world as, as snowflakes in Satan's battle to, to break down God's creation, and he invites us instead to be that beautiful Christmas snow that makes everything absolutely gorgeous over Christmas week. Like the beautiful snowflakes that were falling today that 
you could just sit back and enjoy because I, I think everyone's probably where we were trying to be today. We, no one's traveling across the country right now. More than likely, I should say no one, but, but we look at that snow and it's beautiful. We just enjoy it. So too, we're meant to be that for others, that, that people can look at us and, and see the joy of Christmas snow and rejoice in it. God invites us to be not the snow that breaks down the transit system or keeps us from the places we need to be, but to be beautiful Christmas snow that refreshes the world. May we be that today. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your love and for your grace. Thank you for taking us and, and offering us a place in, in your victory that we're told is assured. Lord, would you help us to, to turn away from the chaos and evil of the world that sometimes seems to be victorious and sometimes we're drawn into, all too often we're drawn into. Turn all the more towards you and be, be a beautiful Christmas snow for those around us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. I hope this was an encouragement to you, and if it was, please do give it a like or a share, and consider inviting people to watch this with you, or, or better yet, download that 12 Days of Christmas devotional booklet that's going through the whole story of redemption, and invite a friend or friends to, to read through it with you over the next couple of weeks. It's a wonderful way to, to think about scriptural truth just a few minutes every day, and we do have a Facebook event up where you can comment and share your thoughts and and reflections as we apply it together over those coming weeks. I, I hope that, that you'll take part in that. We also have a Christmas stream running all the way through Epiphany, and I hope you'll take part in that as well. It's going to be a joy to, to share that, and it'll be getting new content throughout the week. So if you stop by and you see some things, then stop by again and see some more wonderful Christmas songs and Christmas messages and fireplace scenes, things just to, to make us all feel a little bit more joyful over this week. hope that's a blessing to you as well. One other thing I should mention, we have a different service time on Sunday. It's New Year's Day, our next worship service. We've been online the last couple of weeks unexpectedly. We are planning to be back in person this, this Sunday, but as we are, we are going to be meeting just this Sunday at 2 p.m. So I hope you'll join us at that special time, 2 p.m. on New Year's Day for worship. And then we'll be back at 5.30 the following week for a special Epiphany service on Sunday. Uh, Epiphany Sunday. So I hope you'll join us for all that. I hope you have a very merry Christmas week, and I will see you again soon, hopefully, on the devotional journey. Have a blessed week.